Hey, everybody. Pastor John just whispered in my ear, that's a BA walkout song. I'm like, yeah, I would agree. I think it is. Anyway, just some information for you, what goes on between the, you know, just in case you ever wonder. Yeah. If I was to say the name Ronnie Rothy, how many of you would know who I'm talking about? <laughs> Stop. We don't need any of that. That's not what I asked for. If you're new here, Ronnie Roth, he's our lead pastor. He's not here today. But um, how many of you are actually friends with him on Facebook? Cool. Awesome. Well, that's definitely not the entire room. So I thought we'd take a moment and just see, like, what could we actually learn about Ronnie Rothy from his Facebook profile? What things could we kind of learn about him? What could we figure out about him? So let's go ahead and take a look. Well, we can see he's the pastor of this church. That's good to know. Uh, it's his wife, Christy. That must be his wife, Christy. Video of himself. Uh, video of himself. A video of himself, picture, picture of himself. Oh, he's got family. He must eat every now and then. That's good to know. Video of himself, video of himself, video of himself. <laughs> it goes on like this for a while. I mean, you can learn some stuff. I think I was in that one. That's his face. Um, it's really hard to figure out much about Ronnie by looking at this. Family Christmas, that's nice. Oh, he must work out. Video of, video of himself, right? And so... We can look at his social media profile and we can learn some facts about him. Like if you follow him on Facebook, if you know him, you probably know some facts about him. But actually social psychologists would say we don't actually know Ronnie. Uh, we simply know some stuff about Ronnie. They would use terms like impersonal and personal knowledge to describe kind of what we know about Ronnie just from looking at his Facebook profile. You, you would know some things like his name. Uh, you would know where he works because it's listed on there. Uh, you would assume that he really likes tattoos. Uh, if you looked at that, you'd probably assume that sharks are his favorite animal because he's got a big old shark tattoo, right? It must be his favorite animal. You could assume he works out or he's on steroids. You wouldn't really know <laughs> either one. I mean, just by looking at his Facebook profile, you wouldn't know. But here's the thing. I know Ronnie Rothy. I, I know him. He's, he's one of my closest friends. We were friends before I started working here. And for 10 years, we've worked closely, pouring heart and soul into this church. Uh, I, I know things about him. Like, I know his family. I've spent time with him. We, we, have meal, we share meals together. Uh, I know him relationally. Like, I know the things that he struggles with. Uh, I know the fact that he loves you deeply. That his love for you and his desire to lead you well, that that keeps him up at night. And that sometimes he's wounded by you deeply. I, I know that. I know what he's scared of. I know that he's scared that, that he'll never live up to what God has actually called him to. I know that's a fear that, that gets whispered into his mind. I know he's scared he's not going to be able to lead our church forward into the future the way God wants for you. I know his temptations. And we just finished this behind the curtain series about temptations. I, I actually know his temptations. We talk about them. We share those things uh, to be in community and, and in love for each other. Uh, I know which one of his kids are his favorite. And, <laughs> and I know... I know what body part he shaves on a given day. And if that isn't personal knowledge, <laughs> I, I really don't know what is. And so after, after kind of thinking through that portion of the beginning of this message, I thought, well, what else could I find out about knowing people? And so I went to the Googles. You know, I typed in how many people can someone really know. And it wasn't long before I ran across an article that I really enjoyed reading. It was an article about a social psychologist named Robin Dunbar. And Robin Dunbar is best known for his work in kind of the social spheres of, of understanding relationships and the inner dynamics of how relationships work. And he actually created a, a formula called Dunbar's number. Dunbar's number actually states that 
humans, uh, like cognitively, we really only have the ability to maintain about 150 friends. And as Dunbar started to dig into what that actually meant, he, he began to learn that even that number is far more nuanced than he had originally assumed. And so he created this, this whole little diagram to help us figure out what relationships are all about. And so he would say that known faces, known faces, the average is people could actually know about 5,000 faces. Seems like a lot to me, but if you would know, like, if you show up here on a Sunday morning, we're a fairly large church, and you would know the faces, and you might know the face of somebody that you cross paths with at the grocery store often, or you might know the face of the person who makes you coffee on a daily basis. Uh, no names. He would say 1,500. I can tell you for sure that is not true for me. Uh, these are averages. I probably might know 50 names. I don't know. I'm not very good at that. Acquaintances, about 500. Uh, this is, this is kind of where you're getting into that kind of Facebook friend type of thing where you know some stuff about them and you connected at one point and so you kind of friended each other. But f- for the entirety of your relationship, you're not much more than acquaintances. That's where we cross the line into this friends place. 150 friends. Now, Dunbar would say friends are more like that once a year group of people. Maybe you show up together at a wedding or a funeral, or you have enough interaction within each other's lives that you would see each other about once a year, but you'd still call them friends. And then you jump into the good friends portion of the circle. Good friends is about 50. He would, he would say this is more like your backyard barbecue group, uh, your football, you go watch a football game with them. But you and I know, like even that group of 50, like that shifts and changes kind of based on which person in that 50 you, you really know well, and then you might go to the next one, it's kind of a different 50. But he'd say that's, that's what the 50 number means. Best friends, 15. I actually was really grateful to see that because I've always kind of said, oh, he's my best friend, and he's one of my best friends. And it's kind of nice that Dunbar proved me right. I can have more than one. So best friends around here, actually, uh, we would actually call this our, our tea life groups. Like this is kind of our goal for that. that. This is the group of people that you would let watch your kids uh, you're close enough, and I guess that depends. That's very relative, like who you, it depends on how much you love your kids, right? But anyway, the, this, these are the people that you would hang out with in your tea life group. You'd get to know them. You, you'd begin, you'd do life with them. You'd have real relationships with these people. Uh, close friends, five. That'd be the, the shoulders you cry on uh, when something happens in your life, when there's hurt or pain or joy. These are the, these are the first five people. These are, these are the ones that you would call your close friends. And your intimates, one and a half. Now, I'm not advocating for that half. Like, I don't, this is just averages. We're not talking about the half here. Uh, but that's, he's just showing that, that that's how much it takes to get to that one person or, or the five people. It takes a lot of work. Actually, Dunbar would say that it takes 200 hours of investment within the span of just a few months to go from acquaintances to good friends. 200 hours in just a few months to go from acquaintances to good friends. And so Dunbar does a good job of helping us understand human relationship. Uh, But human relationship really isn't all that different. It's the same general concepts of what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. You see, for some of you, you have zero relationship with Jesus. I would assume this, but maybe not. Maybe you walked in this morning, you didn't even know his name, and you can say, now I moved into the known names realm of Jesus. Uh, You've heard about him, but you don't don't really know anything about him. I'm super grateful that you're here. Like, Actually, I hope that this message speaks to you more than anybody. A lot of you, though, I believe probably most of our church body in here this morning, they know something about Jesus. They might even say they've crossed into the friends realm. Uh, that They come on Sundays. Uh, they know some stuff about him. They've heard stories about him. 
They've learned some facts about him. They can check mark some boxes about facts. They can navigate through a conversation about Jesus. Right? They can, Jesus, yeah, that, he's the son of God. He had a beard. He wore a robe with a racing stripe, I think. Uh, I think he was in one of the trades. I, I don't really remember which one. And he parted the water, right? No, 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 he walked on the water. You can have a conversation about Jesus and not sound stupid, right? That's kind of what we're saying. But do you really know Jesus? Robin Dunbar, social psychologist, secular social psychologist, outside of faith, outside of religion, they'd say no. Uh, you have an impersonal knowledge of him, but you don't really know him. And if you don't really know him, you can't possibly be experiencing what it means to have a right, good, healthy relationship with him. Because knowing who Jesus is helps us know how to have a relationship with him. And the reason I'm doing this series, I'm doing this series because I'm concerned. I'm concerned because although there's growing hostility, uh, growing angst towards Christianity, towards Christians, towards followers of Jesus, we still live in a, in a fairly overtly Christian religious culture. Uh, here in Omaha, you guys, could, you know this as well, we live in a very overtly Catholic culture uh, where so many of us have grown up with this cursory knowledge, uh, an impersonal knowledge about Jesus without ever really truly knowing who he is and therefore either wrongly believe themselves to be saved wrongly believe themselves to be a Christian or a follower of Jesus, they see things like, yeah, I was baptized. I, I went through confirmation. I've been com confirmed. I took communion. Or other traditions, we'd say, hey, I showed up to Sunday school. I heard the stories. I, I know all the stories. I got baptized. I walked an aisle once at camp. I know all the stories. I did the things. I know all the stuff. So we either wrongly believe ourselves to be saved or We've walked away from the faith altogether because our cognitive knowledge, our cursory knowledge about the facts of Jesus, they couldn't carry us through the heart-level, gut-wrenching pain of real life. And that concerns me. It concerns me deeply because I want more for you. I believe you want more for you, and I can promise you, God wants so much more for you. And I believe that as we behold Jesus... As, as we look on him, not just what he's done, not just facts or check marks about what he's done, but who he is, our relationship with him will strengthen and we will experience more of him. And he will begin to fulfill what our hearts truly need, a comfort in our loneliness, freedom from our shame and our guilt, or joy in our times of trouble. He began to do that for us and that happens through relationship with him, not, not a check marks of marks of of knowing facts about him, knowing things about him. We actually know him for who he is, and slowly, slowly we begin to be changed. Around here we use the word transformed. Slowly we begin to be transformed into who he created us to be. See, the Apostle Paul, who hated Jesus. In fact, the Apostle Paul, who spent nearly all of his energy trying to wipe out and eradicate the faith, but eventually had... An interaction, an encounter with the, the personal Jesus. He began to have a personal knowledge of Jesus and then changed everything. Lived the rest of his life to serve Jesus. He said it this way in 2 Corinthians 3.8. He said, and we all 
with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, beholding Jesus, are being transformed into the same image, the image of Jesus, from one degree of glory to another. See, Paul is arguing that by looking upon Jesus, by beholding Jesus with unveiled faces, with, without the veil of religiosity, without the veil of impersonal cursory knowledge about facts about him, truly seeing him for who he is, that is where we are changed. And I love this verse. If you've been following Jesus for any time, you know this verse to be true. That it's not, hey, we step, we cross the line of faith, and all of a sudden, wham, we're transformed in everything he wants us to be. You know that isn't true. I know that isn't true. And in fact, I've spent most of my life going, God, could you hurry this up? Why, why am I still dealing with the same stuff that I dealt with years ago? Could you hurry this up? And, and yet this verse tells us that, no, we go from one degree of glory to the next, one next step after another, truly following and knowing who Jesus is. And that's my hope over this next six weeks, uh, that we would behold Jesus and begin to know him for who he truly is. And I'll tell you the truth. The enemy worked hard on me this week as I began to prepare this series the enemy began to, to tell me things that I know not to be true, but it, man, it's so hard. I was getting my hair cut this past week because I get my hair cut when I preach. You guys know that, right? I've said that. Anyway, Randy, who I've known forever, she's cutting my hair. She knows I get my hair cut before I preach. She always asks me, hey, what are you preaching about? And I usually love to tell her, and this time I didn't want to tell her. This time I didn't want to tell her because I didn't think it was enough. Because I didn't think it would interest her enough. Because all I have was Jesus. I don't have a, hey, three steps to make your marriage better or four weeks to create better habits. And there's nothing wrong with those things. I preach that series. But I'll tell you what's true. The more we behold Jesus, the more we know who he is, the more we look at him, all of those things fall into the right place. But without looking at him first, none of that stuff matters. But how do we know who Jesus really is? Well, thankfully for us, he isn't hiding behind some perfectly edited profile picture with beautified filters all over or this perfectly crafted photo op. No, Jesus, man, he's super clear about who he is. In fact, in the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, in the New Testament, the second half of our Bible, man, Jesus makes some distinct statements about who he is. He says, I am the bread of life. Not, I have done some things that are like bread. No, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. This, this is who I am. And we're going to look at those things over these next six weeks. But before we dive into all those I am statements about Jesus, today I wanted to jump, jump back a little bit earlier in the, in the Gospel of John. And I wanted to share with you a story that I believe shows how a single relational level interaction with Jesus has the power to change everything. And I love the book of John. The book of John is where we're going to spend our time over these weeks. And John's awesome. Like the book of John was written by the apostle John. And the apostle John was probably one of, if not the last living disciple. We know that his, his gospel was the last one to be written. And what I love about it is John looks back at the other three gospels because they were already in circulation. He had already had the chance to read them. And he says, man, I don't want to write the same stories. You know, you look at those other three Gospels, they kind of share the same stories from different vantage points, and that's awesome. But John says, I got news stories. 
I got different stories. I, I got things about Jesus that they didn't get to see. I also love that, that John constantly describes himself as the one that Jesus loved. Like, come on, dude. How many times you got to say it? We get it. You, you were his favorite. Anyway, so John writes awesome stories. You should go read John. I think you really should do that. But there's two different ways we can read Scripture. Uh, first way is like a newspaper. Newspaper. We can read it like a textbook, if you will. We can read it and we can find out facts. We can, we can learn facts about what Jesus did or didn't do. We can learn facts about what he said or what he didn't say, what other people said about Jesus. We can, we can find facts. Or we can read it like we used to read stories when we were a kid. And we put ourselves into the text. And that's what I want to do today, that when John tells a story about going on a journey, I want to think about what we would do if we were getting ready to go on a journey. I want to think about what we would carry with us. What clothes would we wear? What would the rocks feel like on our feet? What would the weather be like? When, when, when John talks about being tired and weary, what would it feel like to be tired and weary? When he talks about it being hot, or we, we know that the, the culture, or sorry, the, the climate at the time where they were, that it was hot. What would it feel like for us to go on that journey? And that's where I want to be as we read this passage today. I'm going to read a lot at, at one time. We're going to read straight through the story because I want to read it like a story. Uh, and I hope that's helpful for you. My wife tells me that I sniff when I read. So it's because, anyway, whatever. Just, I'm just giving you a heads up because that way if you know what's coming, it's not distracting, right? I'm going to sniff. Anyway, we're going to read in chapter 4, verse 1. It starts like this. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. I do need to stop right there. This is not John who wrote this book. Just to be clear, this is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is another story. It's an awesome story, but I'm not going to talk about it today. You should go and read it yourself. It's great. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. That's one of the more important verses for us today. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you, are, you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Yeah, good for you. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place to worship uh, must be in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, 
A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, but we worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And there's, there's so much in there. I mean, there's all kinds of cultural oddities. There's all kinds of things about this text that we need to know to be able to really get the fullness of what's taking place. One of those things is that line I, I, I pointed out in the beginning that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, it's true that to get from where he was to where he needed to go, he needed to go through part of Samaria. Uh, but there were two ways to get there. You could go straight up the middle, which would have taken him through Sychar like you did, or go all the way around. And Jews always went all the way around. And this isn't like, we're not talking like when Google Maps says this route is five minutes slower, let's take the scenic route, whatever. No, this is days. We're talking about days walking through the desert heat just to avoid going through Samaria because Jews hated Samaritans. In fact, John tells us, he makes it super clear, Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And yet Jesus, Jesus just says, I have to go this way. Well, why? Is he not considering his young disciples who really haven't been with him very long at this point? Are they ready for this? Are, are they ready? For, can they handle the cultural awkwardness that's about to ensue in this situation? He doesn't seem to care. He just says, I have to go this way. And he heads north because he's got an appointment. He's got an appointment with this woman. The other thing to point out is the woman is at the well the wrong time of day. Now, if you've ever had the chance or the opportunity or the blessing to be able to travel overseas to some different parts of the world, I've, I've been able to be uh, in Mali and Burkina Faso and West Africa, Ethiopia. I've been over in those places quite a few times over my life, and, and it still happens today. Women get up super early, and they head to whatever water source happens to be close, and they go as a group. And it's a very communal experience even to this day, and they do what women do here. Uh, they talk about their husbands and their kids. They just don't wear yoga pants. Like it, it's the exact same situation. It's all about creating community amongst the women of that tribe or that village. Yet for some reason, this woman, she hasn't gone with the other women. She's purposefully avoiding this communal experience. But why? Well, we find out why. She's had five husbands, and the one that she's with isn't even her husband. You know, in our day, that just sounds like a crazy friend from college. But in her day, that would get her killed. She could be killed for that very thing. What what happened? Well, we don't, we don't really know. Maybe the first five guys died and the sixth one's like, no, dude, I'm not going out like that. Nope. We'll just keep it, we'll just keep it like this. Or maybe, and probably more likely, is that she was wildly promiscuous. That she was searching for something in her soul that she wasn't getting from anywhere else. But what we do know is that part of her life, it was a mark of shame for her. And that caused her to pull away from relationship and community. And she now spends 
all of her energy trying to hide. And so in the middle of the day, when she knows nobody else is actually going to be there, she heads on out to the well, except <laughs> the Savior of the world's there. Jesus is there. And when she gets there, she's got some significant hurdles to overcome when it comes to actually believing that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, cultural differences withstanding, like Jesus, Jesus goes right after and touches the most tender, shame-filled, vulnerable parts of who she is. And when she finally, in complete and utter desperation, says, give me this living water. Give me this living water so I don't have to keep hiding. Give me this living water so I don't have to keep trying to avoid community and coming out here in the middle of the day to get water. I'm tired. I'm weary. I'm broken. And Jesus says, go get your husband. And it seems cruel. Why would Jesus do that? I mean, just give her the living water. It's nice and easy right there. But, but Jesus is going after the stuff. Jesus is pursuing the spaces that only he can heal. I mean, she had put all of her energy into avoiding the either very real or perceived judgment of others. And up until this point, we can assume she's been pretty successful. Yet she hasn't been healed. She's only been enslaved more and more to the guilt and the shame that she was already living in. But Jesus, Jesus being rich in love, Jesus being rich in mercy engages that space to pull it out and heal it. And if you think about it, those places, those places where we go and we hide, and those things that we keep off of our social media profile that we don't want people to see, those are some of the primary hurdles we have that keep us from actually knowing and having a relationship with Jesus. And therefore they hinder our ability to have a deeper relationship with him. And we spend so much of our energy trying to hide who we really are. Trying to hide what, what we're really scared of. As if he doesn't already know what we're scared of. And we wonder why we're not experiencing him. We're wondering why we don't feel him. A lot of us wonder why we don't even really understand what it means to have a relationship with him. We're not experiencing that living water. The story goes on. I didn't have time to read it, but she runs back into town. Remember her story. Five husbands and another dude that she's with now. She runs into town. She says, come and see the man. You don't think for a second that there was some eye rolls or some whispering. Is she talking about a new dude? Like, can't keep track. Come and see the man who told me everything about me. Come and see the man who knows everything about me and loves me. And the town, they... They come out with her. And John tells us that so many in the town ended up putting their faith in Jesus. They ended up following him after beholding him. Not just because of her testimony, but because of her testimony. And they came out to hear him speak. And he offered them living water as well. And so I ask you, are you experiencing living water? Are you experiencing the the thirst-quenching, life-giving, the soul-satisfying water that only comes from knowing Jesus for who he is. If not, why? I'll tell you, that does not happen from knowledge. It doesn't happen from knowing facts about him. The opportunity to experience this living water, as Jesus tells us, just a few chapters later in John begins with this. 
Put your faith in Jesus. That's the first step. We've got to cross that line of faith. Once we've learned enough about him, once we, once we feel drawn enough and we put our faith in Jesus, that's the first step. Jesus in chapter 7 of John, like he's, at a, he's at a festival. And if you know anything about festivals back in their culture, everybody was there. Everybody came to the festivals. Uh, it was usually in Jerusalem. And Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And I can guarantee there's people in the room right now that are like, wait a second, Matt, like, I've done that. I believed him. I believed in him. I, I, I have believed the fact that I'm a sinner and I need to say, I've done it. And I'm not experiencing anything that resembles living water. And I think it's because for so many of us, We've kind of stayed in these outer circles. We, we've stayed out here. And maybe we've crossed the line into friendship. Maybe we've asked him to be our forgiver. Maybe, maybe we know him. But we've never done anything to move further into the circle. Because for so many of us, this is where we stop. And people will argue with me. There, there's people in this room who may not agree with me. It might be smarter than I am. I don't really know. But I believe you can have an impersonal relationship with Jesus and be saved. See, Scripture tells us you're saved by faith. You're saved by grace through faith alone. That's it. There's no other, there's nothing else. Saved by grace through faith. And so I have to believe that you have the opportunity, should you choose, to have a saving relationship with Jesus and never experience him. That you could... You could get your get out of hell free card and never experience what he wants for you today. And what he wants for you today is him. He wants his kingdom in your life today, not just someday in the future, not when this is all said and done. He wants it for you today. And so you can have said the words. You can have the faith to believe he can save you and never allow him to lead you. And what affects our ability to follow Jesus, our intimacy with Jesus is that we try and hide. We try and hide the dark and the vulnerable and the shameful place. We try and keep our feelings in here. We try and hide the fact that we have some real struggles as if he doesn't already know. That's what's so crazy about the story to me is that Jesus knows when he says, go get your husband. He's not taken off guard. He's not surprised by her answer. He knows what he's getting into. He's going after the spot that she doesn't want him to touch. The spot that's so painful, so shameful, so vulnerable to her. She, he's going after that spot and she doesn't want to let it out. Yet it's in the touch of Christ that it's healed. So if that's the case for you, if, if you have put your faith in Jesus and are not experiencing living, are not experiencing what it means to have a relationship with him, I, I think your next step for, for this series at least would be honest. Be honest about the fact that the reason you don't truly know Jesus isn't because he can't be known, but because maybe, maybe you've never taken the time to truly try and get to know him. Be honest that maybe you've just been okay with the, the facts about him. You've been okay with the stuff you learned as a kid. Maybe that's carrying you through today. Be honest about you've got some junk that you're still trying to hide, that you've got some stuff that it makes you nervous to think about God getting in there to work on. And let that honesty 
Let it drive you to be open. You see, the rest of this series, be open to learn more about who Jesus is. Not just what he's done. We can learn facts about what he's done all day long and it could, it could never impact us without us trying to get to know him. Now be open to what Jesus says about himself. That's what we're going to look at for six more weeks. Jesus is clear about himself. Be open to what he says about himself. Be open about your struggles and your fears. And even more so, be open about your doubts. Because he knows anyway. You're not hiding anything. Because knowing who Jesus is helps us know how to have relationship with him. And it's in relationship with him that we begin to experience the spring of living water. I, I didn't know whether or not I was going to do this part. Mostly because as I wrote the line out, it sounded like a cheesy preacher line. But stay with me on this. We are all the woman at the well. Jesus has an appointment with the woman and he says, go get your husband. And she knows. She knew because it was the most vulnerable place in her life. For me, Jesus had an appointment with me. And it wasn't at a well. It was on the dock of Spring Valley Lake in Apple Valley, California. It was late one evening. And Jesus chose to walk right through my story when he could have gone around. On that evening, for whatever reason, Jesus decided to walk right through my story on the dock at Spring Valley Lake when he could have avoided me. I didn't have five husbands, but I was 18 years old, and I decided I didn't care at all about having a real personal relationship with him. I decided that I was perfectly fine checking the box and having my get-out-of-hell-free get, get card and never actually diving into what it meant to have a relationship with him. And Jesus comes in that night, and he starts poking around, and he exposes the darkness and the brokenness inside of me. And things were radically changed in my life. And so when I read John 4, I want to remember the dock at Spring Valley Lake. I want to remember that I had tried to do it on my own. And, and I can tell you, it wasn't working for me. And I was left hurting and alone. I want to remember that Jesus, although he could have gone around, he chose to walk right through my story and offer me living water. And so, again, I ask you, like, what's your well story? When was the day you first experienced living water? What was the day you were first offered living water? I'm about to pray for us, kind of land this plane. Before I do, I, I came across a quote from C.S. Lewis as I was preparing uh, this whole series, actually. And, and it really spoke to me. I, I think it's super key. I actually changed kind of the wording so it fits with our, with our context here today. But I believe this quote will expose in you, as it did in me, how we truly feel about what Jesus has to say about himself. It goes like this. What Jesus has to say about himself is either unimportant or infinitely important. The one thing it can't be is moderately important. Unimportant or infinitely important. You see, Jesus, in today's passage, Jesus said, I am the Savior of the world. And so you have to decide, unimportant or infinitely important, unimportant of no circumstance to you, or it changes everything. There's no in between. And for me, 
For me, it changes everything. Let me pray for us. For those of you in the room who have, who have yet to ask Jesus to be the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life, who have yet to experience the beginning of a relationship with him, who, who have yet to accept the offer of living water, you can pray a prayer just like this with me. Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I, I understand and know that I'm broken and in need of a Savior. Would you come and save me? And would you lead me for the rest of my life? Holy Spirit, I pray that you're working in this room. Amongst two groups of people, those that have yet to know you and the no, those that have known you but are, have yet to be in relationship and walk alongside you, would you continue to work? Holy Spirit, as we step into this series, would you open our eyes individually, of course, but together as a church, how can we know more about you? How can we gaze our eyes upon Jesus and be changed? We love you. We thank you for your word. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.